The famous Swiss theologian Karl Barth is quoted as saying that preachers should preach with the Bible in one hand and with the newspaper in the other hand. This week I had a hard time putting the newspaper down. I've, of course, been following the path of Irma, as I know you have, as it hits my home state, the aftermath in Texas. But Thursday's Des Moines Register is the one I had a hard time putting down. Creston students are disciplined after social media photo surfaces. It's a picture. Perhaps you've seen it on the newspaper, on the news, on Facebook, of five Iowa high school students, all football players, with white pillowcases made of hoods. A pathetic makeshift cross set of fire. One student's carrying a gun, another a Confederate flag. And the school kicked off five players off the football team. They are all from Creston. And we could ignore it, put the newspaper down. I mean, that's 60 miles away. But they're still Iowan students. They are ours, a part of us. After the story on Thursday, there was a follow-up on Friday. Some parents are threatening a lawsuit against the school district to get their boys back on the football team because, you know, football is more important than a moral center in our children. Sorry, Doug, but I'm not a fan, I guess. No. <laughs> and then yesterday, there was another story, the story of Kylan, Kylan Smallwood. Maybe you saw it on the front page above the fold. Kylan Smallwood, the black quarterback in Creston. I thought these guys were my friends, he was quoted as saying. I've been to some of their houses. I've talked with them. I don't want to be playing with kids like that, he said. It's been hard to put the paper down this week. On Thursday, a few hours after I first became aware of this story, I sat in a room of my colleagues, Marty and I, with our disciple clergy in our cluster. And one of the pastors who was there was the pastor at First Christian Church in Creston. And we wrestled with Tony over what his response should be, his church's response to what had happened in their own town. But we also affirmed together that this, while being particularly acute to disciples in Creston, was our issue. And as disciples in Iowa, it was something we all should claim. Look, I know I've talked about racism before. It seems more than once uh, lately. But it just won't go away. So let's be clear, this is not a politically partisan issue, because here's the deal. Republican or Democrat in our histories are equally stories of oppression and liberation and a long history of bipartisan support of oppressing people who are in the minority. So we share, all of us, in this painful history. But regardless of what identity we claim, we are Christians, disciples of Christ. And let's be clear, racism is antithetical to the gospel of Christ. To be Christian is to be, in part, anti-racist. On Thursday, our regional minister, Bill Spangler Dunning, challenged us, clergy and churches, to speak out. And he said, you know, if we don't, then what relevance is the church in our culture? So I had a hard time putting the newspaper down this week, but... When I did put it down and pick up the Bible, well, it wasn't any easier because there's that text that Doug just read. It's a troubling text, these ancient words about Passover. Now, we've been in Exodus a few weeks uh, now following the story of Moses. We remember how just a few weeks ago he was drawn out of the water, liberated from the genocide in his own country by the very daughter of Pharaoh who ordered that genocide. 
How he grew up uh, one day and acted out in anger against an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave. One of his own people. He killed that Egyptian and had to flee to Midian where he met a woman, where he became a shepherd. Far from the troubles of Egypt until one day, as we saw last week, God shows up in the quiet of his job, tending sheep. And a burning bush begins to speak to him and sends him back to Egypt. God says, go back to Pharaoh and let my people go. Now, this week, we've skipped ahead in the story. The lectionary we're following skipped a whole lot of great details, a few more gory stories, if you will. There's been confrontations with Pharaoh who refused to let the people go. There's been plagues, nine of them at this point. And finally, they're about to be freed. But before they are freed, they're going to celebrate a meal as families. We read the details of this Passover meal, and it's a beautiful ritual still celebrated today by Jewish families. But as far as sermon texts go, it's a bit strange. We usually pass over this Passover text because it has lots of boring details. And if they're not boring, they're disturbing. Because the whole pretext of this passage is that God is going to free the Hebrews, but do so by putting to death the firstborn sons of all the Egyptian families. This is troubling, is it not? God killing innocents. And we usually pretend like things like this aren't in our Bibles until the preacher stands up and assigns a reading to Doug to share with us. So here is our text for this week. God slaughtering Egyptian firstborn sons, oh, and firstborn livestock as well, but passing over the houses of the Hebrews. At once, this text is this beautiful text of liberation, but also one of God's vengeance against the oppressor. And I'll be honest, I don't really like the vengeance side of God. And I don't really know what to do with it. So you don't have to either, I guess. But ignoring it is probably not the best option. But neither is outright condoning it. Some have suggested our text may be more of a myth, a story that transmits meaning, but not necessarily gives us full historical fact. After all, it's written hundreds of years after the event happened. Maybe some of the details were added later. Regardless of how you interpret it, though, nowhere in this text does God command God's followers to carry out vengeance. God is the one who acts, and God is the only one who can be blamed. The heart of the text, no matter how you read it, remains liberation. God may love Hebrews and Egyptians alike, but God always stands up for those who are oppressed. And God will stand up against empires that do the oppression. That's the story. And throughout scripture, from the first page to the very last, the one thing we can definitively say about God is that our God is one who stands for the oppressed. So, back to the newspaper. Also this week was published... A letter from the parents of one of the boys who apologized, a strong statement from them. They support the school's decision to discipline their son. They write that the photo in no way reflects our family values. Our family strongly believes that all individuals are created equally in God's eyes. Good for them, good for the paper for publishing their whole letter. But I want to push back just a little bit. Because while it is, I am confident, very true, that none of us teach our children to be overtly racist like this. Something is still alive in our culture. These boys learn it from somewhere. I know kids 
make stupid mistakes. Aren't we glad, can we say amen, that social media didn't exist when some of us were kids? Yeah, it's stupid. But it's also appalling. It's disgusting because these boys wittingly or unwittingly appropriated this long history of hate. They picked up symbols that mean something. A white hood, a gun, a burning cross, a confederate flag. They didn't hurt anyone physically, but they waved the symbols of those who did. And in doing so, remind us that the stain of this sin is still with us. And we should be appalled. Because our kids are often mirrors of society. They say out loud what we may whisper. They read between our lines. And somewhere along the way, these boys heard the wrong stories. And this is where we pick the Bible back up. Because I don't know if God actually killed all the firstborns in Egypt or not. And I don't like that it's in my Bible. And I'll continue to wrestle with that. But embedded in this story is this truth about empire. This truth of being oppressors. For this text is good news to the Hebrews who are saved, but it's also good news to the Egyptians who are the oppressors. That though you and your family, me and mine, may not actively participate in oppressing others, we may not be the ones who beat the slave or tie the noose or wave the flag or burn the cross, but we benefit from a history of oppression. That's what we mean when you hear terms like white privilege or white supremacy. Racism is part of our societal DNA, an original sin that we've never fully come to terms with. We ignore it, but it festers. We deny it, but it rears its ugly head in ways like this, even sometimes in our kids, in our country, by being born white. Well, there's just some things you just don't have to deal with, certain stories you don't have to know or tell. It doesn't mean we're active in oppression. It just means we benefit from a system of oppression without any effort or knowledge. And it's said that the only thing that is needed to help it continue is silence. That's how it was in Egypt. Not every Egyptian oppressed the Hebrews, but every Egyptian benefited from a society built on slave labor. And yet in spite of the unjust benefit, oppression hurts us all. It harms our souls. In Exodus 12 is this declaration from God that there's going to be a new society. It begins with a resetting of the clocks. God calling for a new year. Did you notice that? The beginning. It's a new month, a new year. Time is beginning again. A new day where liberation will be how we organize our society. But he's also offering the Egyptians a chance to begin again, to erase their past sins. In order to mark this new age, God gives the Hebrews a meal, a meal that is not celebrated in a temple with priests, but at home with their family, a meal that requires the telling of a story. Every year, the story repeated, a chance for children to ask questions, to make sure they know the details of their story. They know who they are and where they come from. Symbols that reenact that moment, that night of salvation. So that everyone grows up knowing their history and everyone knows the root of their faith and identity is in God who is a liberator. Liberation begins in the home. And now is the time to tell those stories of liberation, the stories of women and men standing up in our country against oppression. Of people of faith, churches fighting for the rights of all people, stories that we need to boldly tell because other stories are being told way too loud. Stories that need to be deeply instilled overtly in our children so that the other voices are drowned out. 
And maybe, just maybe, it's beginning to sink in because there's another story in the news this week. One from Norwalk. Do you see Norwalk in the paper, on TV? Norwalk, about how our youth voted an extraordinary student to be their homecoming king. What a beautiful moment. That's the stories we tell. That's the example we hold up. And it starts in the home, around the table, around a family dining table. And it also starts here is with our church family. Our faith is centered in the table. And so we always end up here. We always end up here to tell the story, the story of liberation of a Savior who does not pass over his people, but stops and offers salvation. A Savior who redeems us from the stain of the sin that we carry. A Savior who sets us free and shows us a way out of the land of Egypt. A Savior who gives us symbols. Our symbols are bread and of wine. Symbols of a meal. Symbols of life, of nourishment. Of a meal that gives us the sustenance we need to continue. These are our symbols. And God has reset the clock and declared a new age. An age that is marked by gathering around a table where all are welcome. Everyone is welcome. And we continue to fight the urges from without, those edges in our culture that call us to other ways of being, that some people should not be here, but no, the table remains. And we tell the story every week to remind us, to remind our children, to get it deep in our souls that this is what being Christian is about. This is who our God is, a God who prepares a meal who makes sure all are fed and all are cared for and all are welcome. Let us prepare now to remember and to come again to this table as we sing number 400. When you do this, remember me. We'll sing verses 1 and 2 on the card.